This sermon, Crazy for Christ, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, January 29th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning, church. Glad that you're here. Glad to be here with you. Open up your Bibles to the book of Acts with me, please, if you would. If, if you don't have a Bible, there, should, there may be one under the chair in front of you. Acts 25. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 25 and 26 this morning. Another big chunk. Uh, but they very much are a unit. Um, so... We'll trust the Lord for what he has for us this morning. But we're not going to read the entire text. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read the final 13 verses. Chapter 26, verse 19 through 32, which is what everything's kind of leading up to. So Acts 26, verse 19, Luke is writing this recording for us under the inspiration of the Spirit what the Lord was doing in the first century church. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer And that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Maybe seated, please pray with me. Lord, I pray what we have already asked in song, that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word, that your word would be 
strength to our souls, that your word would give us encouragement, that your word would be our guide, that it would teach us how to think about this life, that it would remind us of the life that we have been given, not because we deserve it, but simply because you chose to love us in eternity past. You chose us. You adopted us. You have justified us in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, you know what each heart here needs this morning, whether it's to believe for the first time or to be strengthened and to take courage in their Christian walk. And so, this weak, inadequate preacher trusts your spirit to do all that you intend through the preaching of your word. Be merciful to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're crazy. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? <laughs> Look you in the eyes? Man, you are crazy. Maybe, maybe it was the 20-something corn dogs you ate in one night at the state fair. Maybe it's the speed you redlined your 69 fastback Mustang at out on the county road in the dark of night when all the sheriffs were at home or parked somewhere else. I don't know who did those things. I think Tim shared some of those stories with me. Have you ever been told you're crazy? We've all done crazy things, right? Let's be honest. We've all done crazy things. So I'm going to assume that the answer for everybody's yeah. Yeah, I've had people tell me that I'm crazy before. But maybe the better question is, have you ever been told you were crazy on account of your faith? Have you ever been told you're crazy because of what you believe about Jesus and how that shapes and informs your life? A number of years ago, I was in the mortgage industry, and the Lord had given me this wonderful opportunity. I, I was asked to be a part of a, 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 a mortgage bank startup, and what that meant was that I, I was able to receive as part of my compensation a small equity ownership, right? The promise was, we're going to build this thing together, and guess what? You're going to reap the benefits when we turn around and sell this. So I was like, okay, let's do this. But as time passed, I realized that the practices of this company and what this company demanded from me personally, they were not in line with what I believe the Lord was calling me to. And so I remember sitting in with the owner of the company, and I explained to him that I was resigning my post I was leaving the company because of the practices and because I just can't give you the time that you're demanding of me. My life is not built on money. I went on and explained to him. I saw it as an opportunity to, to help him understand that my hope and priorities were found in Christ. You know what he said to me? You're crazy. What about your kids? What about sending them to a good school? What about giving them the things that 
every good parent should want to give their kids. You're crazy. A few years later, I was, at a, I was uh, uh, back in the mortgage business, and I had been talking to my pastors, and they decided they wanted to send me to pastor's college along with my family. And I was doing very well at the time at that mortgage company. The Lord had given me favor, and I, I had very, a lot of favor with uh, the owner of the company. And I remember walking into his office and saying, I'm resigning. You're resigning? Why? Well, I feel like, the, I believe the Lord has called me to go into the ministry and be a pastor. So I'm going to uproot my family for a year, go back east and study at our pastor's college, and then come back and give myself to the church. Guess what he said? You're crazy. You're crazy. If you live for Jesus, someone at some time will tell you you're crazy. And my prayer for us today is that when that happens, that we would take courage in the Lord to look beyond what others think about us and testify not only with our words but with our actions to the transforming power and grace of Jesus. That, that, that's my hope this morning. Now, let's be honest. What I just said is a lot easier said than done, right? The crazy label from your neighbor can be a powerful paralyzer. But Paul's example today is a reminder for us, not just in those moments, but especially in those moments, that in Christ we are victorious. We are not crazy. We are victorious, and we have nothing to fear. And because we have nothing to fear, living crazy for Christ is the most sane thing that we can do. Acts uh, 24 through 26, where we have spent the, the past two weeks, is com comprised of three trials. Last week, we watched Paul's trial before Felix in chapter 24. And now, today's text, we are two years removed. We are fast-forwarding. Luke is fast-forwarding two years, and we find Paul on trial before Festus, the governor, in chapter 25, and Agrippa in verse 26. So we're going to walk through this fairly quickly, I hope. <laughs> There's a lot of repetition in here, but this is here for a reason, even the repetition, amen? And so we're going to walk through this, and we're going to look at the different players, and then we will apply it. So the first thing in our text in chapter 25 is we find a futile mob, right? We, we know this mob. We've been spending time with this mob the last couple weeks. The Jewish leaders want Paul dead. He is a heretic. He is a blasphemer. He is sacrilegious. He, he has profaned the temple, so they say. For over two years now, they've been conspiring to assassinate Paul. Why? They don't like him talking about Jesus. They don't like his message of the gospel. They think he's a heretic. And so their resolve, even two years later, even though Paul has been under arrest, two years later, their resolve has not wavered one bit. Look how our text starts in verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him 
asking a favor against Paul. Now, this is going to sound familiar because this is what they did with Felix. That he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, that is Festus, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. This is the same crazy mob with the same crazy plan. Convince the governor, this time it's Festus. Festus has just taken over for Felix to send Paul to Jerusalem so that they can ambush him and finally kill him. New governor, same old plan. But once again, their scheme doesn't work. It didn't work with Felix, and Luke makes it clear it's not going to work with Festus. In verses four through five we just read, Festus said, no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'm not, not gonna set this guy up. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to Caesarea, I'll go see Paul, and you can come down, and then you can have your say. You can lay out your charges. And they did. But in verse 7, we learn that for all their serious charges that they could bring against Paul, they could not prove any of them. None of their accusations would stick. How frustrated these Jewish leaders must be. Once again, their, their grand plan has proven to be futile. So we find this futile mob surfacing again, and then we find a confused governor. In verse 13, look what it says. Now when some days had passed, the grip of the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning this charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed." Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead. This pause, isn't that interesting? That struck me this week. To hear them say they, they had, what did he say? They, they had their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul says he was alive. In other words, this was odd to Festus. Who is this Jesus man? A certain man. What, one party says he's dead, one party says he's alive. This is, I've never had anything. In other words, when we read about Jesus in the scriptures, it's just, it's Jesus. But to see Festus go, a certain man named Jesus, is, it's odd to the ear, isn't it? Thank God that he's not a certain man to us. But he is our Savior. He lives in us through the Spirit. We are his brothers and sisters. And right now, he's praying for you. 
Thank God for that. Thank God that, that for you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ by the mercy of God, Jesus is not a certain man. <laughs> he is your savior and ruler of the universes. But look what he says. He goes on. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem, be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow said, said he, you will hear him. In verse 9, Festus invites Paul to Jerusalem to stand before his accusers, right? Paul declines, the, the, Paul declines that invitation. Did you notice what he says? He says, no, he, he, is, he, is, he is appealing to Caesar on the basis of his innocence and with one thing in mind. Do you remember what God told him? Take courage, I'm sending you to Rome. <laughs> Nobody knows where Paul's gonna end up. I think Paul knew where he was going to end up. I'm going to Rome. The Lord has seen me this far. He will see me the rest of the way. Would you remember that when you are struggling with the unknown or when something isn't going right? The Lord knows what he has for you. Now, Festus obliged him saying, fine. To Caesar you have appealed. Did you notice what he said in verse 12? To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you will go. So Festus may look like he's in control here, but he's really not. The fact is, if we pay attention, Festus is confused. He has no idea what is going on. He has come into power. One of the first things he does is try to deal with Paul. Paul has been sitting in jail for two years. Uh, Felix basically kicked the proverbial can down the road here when it comes to dealing with Paul, right? Festus says, I'm going to I'll deal with this guy. I'll fix the issue. Wrong. <laughs> Festus hears both sides, and he has no idea what's going on. He tells Agrippa, I, I, I don't even know the questions to ask. <laughs> I, I have no idea what the, this is. As far as I can gather, this is some religious dispute. I don't even know who this man Jesus is. I can't figure out what to do. And so... I love verse 20. That's where he says, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know the questions to begin to ask. This was driving him crazy. You ever had something drive you crazy? This was driving Festus crazy. He's at a loss. He's confused. He couldn't offload the problem to Jerusalem. Paul wouldn't go. And so he knows, sees that Agrippa's in town. And so he says, oh, maybe... Agrippa will help me. Now remember, we're going to see this in a moment. Paul has appealed to Rome. Festus has no idea what's going on. And yet, he has said, to Rome you will go. Well, listen, Festus knows you can't just send somebody to the emperor if you want the emperor to see, you better be able to write a letter that explains, here's why I've sent this man to you. Here's the situation. Here's what I think ought to happen. But I appeal 
to you. Festus knows if he just sends Paul to Caesarea, it's probably the end of his political career. He can't do that. He can't just send people up the ladder. And so he's confused, perhaps fearing for his political career and legacy. So he says, oh, King Agrippa's in town. (laughs) Maybe he'll deal with this for me. And so he goes to King Agrippa, where we find an embarrassed king. A feudal mob, a confused governor, and an embarrassed king. Notice verse 23, what it says. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then the command, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the, the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he has done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I dis- decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. That word there, pomp, is the word that ushers King Agrippa into the scene, if you will. That word pomp in verse 23 is important. It, it, it comes from the Greek word that means fantasia. It's where we get our English word for fantasy or fantastic. And the idea here is, the idea here is, is an impressive but fleeting pageantry. That the idea here is that this was a show. When Luke says that, that Agrippa came in all his pomp, this was a big deal. Here's the king. He has his cabinet. Festus the governor, no doubt his people were there. The most, Luke says, the most powerful and important men of Caesarea, they were all here to listen and to witness Paul speaking, laying out his case before the king. Imagine, you ever watch the, the State of the Union, the presidential State of the Union? I always love that moment that I forget his name. Maybe you know Tim, but the guy who stands up and says, all rise, and then he introduces the president and all his men and women, right? And then the camera just focuses there, and everybody's walking in, right? And whoo, yeah, you know, everybody wants to shake somebody's hand, and it's just this scene, and then the president comes in. The music is playing, right? Pomp, pageantry. It's a big show. This is the king, Everybody's there in Caesarea who is somebody. Imagine this moment. There stands Paul. Remember, Paul's been, in, Paul, Paul's been incarcerated for, for two years. No doubt he's a bit frail. 
If indeed the thorn in his flesh was poor eyesight, like many have suggested, perhaps he's squinting to see the pomp, to recognize who stands before him. In one sense, you might look at this scene and look at Paul and go, yeah, Paul's pretty pathetic. At the least, I think we could assume this was probably a bit intimidating for Paul. Have you ever been in an intimidating moment? You're the only one in the group at the office lunch who believes that abortion is an abomination to God. And everybody's arguing for their choice. Have you ever been in that moment? Have you ever been in an intimidating moment when you're the only one in the group? Oh, finally, a spiritual discussion with some of my neighbors, but suddenly you realize I'm the only one in this group who believes that Jesus is the only way to God. What am I going to say? You ever been an intimidating moment? I think that if Paul was standing next to you, I think he would say, take courage. Don't worry what they might think of you. Live for Jesus right now. Don't be afraid to speak up. That's exactly what Paul does as he stands in the shadows of powerful people. Frankly, people who could just say, okay, I've heard enough. This has gone on long enough. We are wasting resources for over two years on this guy. Off with his head. We're done. I'm sick of this issue. Paul stands in the shadows of powerful people and does exactly what we have seen him do numerous times in the last few chapters. He gives his testimony. In, in, in chapter 26, we, we see it begins with Agrippa saying, Paul, go ahead, speak in verse 1. And so I love this picture in verse 2 of 26. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I could just see Paul. Okay, y'all. <laughs> and then he says, he starts with the king, I'm so glad that I get to stand here before you because I know that you know about these things. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, I'm going to make my defense today against the accusations of Jews, especially because you, king, are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And that's exactly what Paul does in verses 4 through 11. He shares about his life as a faithful Jew and a zealous Pharisee, doing to Christians what the Jews have been trying to do to him. In verses 12 through 18, Paul shares about his miraculous conversion and how his life was radically turned around by Jesus. 
on the road to Damascus, giving him a new mission in life, new desires in life, a new purpose in life. Paul was on the road to terrorize, imprison, and if need be, kill people who believed in Jesus because they were crazy. (laughs) They were heretical. And Jesus met him on that road. And then in verse 19, Paul makes a tremendous statement about his new mission. Notice verse 19, he says in chapter 26, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. Think about that for a moment. He was going to Damascus to destroy the church. And as he gives his testimony before the king, he says he became obedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus to declare Christ to those who he was going to kill had they believed in Christ when he got to Damascus. He says, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. In other words, that they would repent and believe and live for the glory of Jesus and no longer themselves. For this reason, in verse 21, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, Your Honor, My mission, it's a heavenly vision, i.e., my mission comes from God himself, a God that you are aware of, that you are learned about. I came with a mission from him to bring the good news to the Gentiles. His call was to call sinners like himself, to repent and believe in a crucified and risen Jesus and to live for his glory instead of their own. That was the mission of Paul. Let's not lose sight of that and all the church planting and everything else that that we know Paul for. At the heart of what he was doing was to call sinners to repentance and faith, to believe in Jesus Christ and to live for his glory. That's what Paul got up every morning to do. And even under arrest, he still has one Goal. And by the way, that's our mission today, isn't it? It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. We, we can get sidetracked by competing causes, even competing causes that look good, that seem good, and in some ways are good. Things like social justice, helping the poor, helping the needy, 
doing what we can do to protect the lives of the unborn. But that is not our mission ultimately. That is not our mission ultimately. Sharing the good news of Jesus to whomever we can, that is our mission. It hasn't changed. Our personal ambitions can can cause it to change. But the Christian life is about living for Jesus and telling others about him. It really is that simple. Living for Jesus and telling others about him. And Paul, in these verses that we just read, remind us that the mission we are on is not some crazy fairy tale. It's not pomp and pageantry. Notice in verse 22, he tells the king, God is with me in this. I stand here, accused before the Jews, but I'm here because God has, God has helped me be here. He has helped me get to this place. God is with me. In verses 22 and 23, I love what he does. He pulls the Old Testament prophet card. <laughs> Remember, he knows his audience. He knows King Agrippa, knows about the Old Testament prophets and Moses quite well. And he says, listen, the ancient prophets, Moses, they spoke about my mission. They foretold the gospel. They pointed forward to it. This shouldn't surprise you, King Agrippa. This is the way God intended it. That should bring some confidence to us, shouldn't it? You ever just wonder, boy, is it really true? Should I really be making the sacrifice and living the way I'm living when I consider some of the costs in this life for Jesus and the gospel? Paul reminds us this morning, this was God's eternal plan. Not a plan B, not an optional cause to give your life to. Moses and the prophets foretold that Christ would come. He would die for sinners. He would live and die for sinners. That there would be a Messiah that would save God's people from their sins. That's as if Paul says, oh, king, it's happening right before your eyes. It's why I'm here. Listen, when people call you crazy because you live for Jesus, let Paul's words comfort you. It's God's plan. And I think Paul here is hoping that Agrippa will see this as well. Paul, like we already saw in the beginning verses of chapter 26, he knew Agrippa was an expert on Judaism. He knew that Agrippa knew much about Jesus' life. By the way, do you know the line that Agrippa came from? His grandfather was Herod. Yet that Herod, who was so paranoid of the birth of the Messiah that he sought out, set out to kill all the infant males in the Bethlehem area. Yeah, that's his uncle. Paranoid. He knew what the prophets said. And his grandfather was paranoid about that. 
His uncle is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. The one that, that entered in, that, that the one that, that heralded the coming of the Messiah. And his father is the one who imprisoned Peter and killed James. Agrippa knows a thing or two about the Jews and Jesus. He was not unfamiliar with what Paul was saying. So Paul is hoping here that Agrippa's Jewish beliefs would lead him directly to Christ. So really what's going on, what happens next, is that Paul puts the king on the spot. Notice what he says in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there to see that. You know, that, that is, that, by the way, that is the pastor's greatest fear. <laughs> Somebody stands up and says, Pastor D, you are out of your mind. <laughs> Give me some amens. Just don't tell me I'm crazy. He says, you, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul has just put the king surrounded by all his pomp on the spot. What is it, Agrippa? Do you believe? Because I know you believe. I know you know what's going on here. Before all the pomp and all the power, Paul says, you, you, know, I, you know that Festus is wrong. You know these Jews are wrong. I have done nothing. I am only doing what God has called me to do. That which God prophesied would happen. And I know Festus thinks I'm crazy, but you know better. I am not crazy. Imagine this moment for Festus. I could just see him looking left, looking right. Yeah. What, is, what is the king to do? What is the king to say? He is caught off guard here. This, this, this challenge, if you will, comes out of nowhere. Most of the commentators say, this is an embarrassed king. His response is the fruit of his embarrassment. He is caught off guard. He has been put on the spot. And it's easy to see. Here is the king. Repent and believe crucifixion, resurrection, live for another's glory? They will think I'm crazy. Isn't this what so often, humanly speaking, keeps people from embracing Jesus? They're afraid of what people will think. They're afraid of living for another's glory and what that means for them. Isn't that what keeps so many from responding to the message on a human level in faith? 
what will the king do? Will he allow the pride of intellect, the pride of position? To own him? Will he allow the fear of being called crazy by his inferiors? Keep him? Silence him? Look what he says in verse 28. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? King Agrippa is caught off guard. He's embarrassed. And he rejects the gospel by dodging Paul's question. If you will, throwing out a red herring. He doesn't say no, he doesn't say yes. He kind of looks down at Paul. You? You realize, look around here. <laughs> you would persuade me? In a short moment? Come on. You're here for me. I'm not here for you. <laughs> it's an embarrassed king. It's a confused governor. It's a futile mob. None of them, we get to Acts 26, and none of them can thwart God's plan for Paul to go to Rome with the gospel. Even in all the pomp and power, guess who turns out victorious? Paul. <laughs> if you're keeping points, that's the fourth point. We have a futile mob. We have a confused governor. We have an embarrassed king but we have a victorious evangelist. Notice verse 29. Paul says to the king, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he would not have appealed to Caesar. Guess who's going to Caesar? Guess who's going to see Caesar with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, Acts doesn't tell us. We don't get to that part in the book of Acts. But the point is, the march to Rome with the name of Jesus continues on. One of the primary themes in the, in the book of Acts is that the gospel is unstoppable. And what a moment that we have right here in the midst of all the pomp and the power and the authority to do whatever they can. The Lord works in a way that everybody looks foolish. Everybody looks thin and hollow. But here stands Paul. He's going to Rome. Festus accused him of being crazy in verse 24. The king thinks Paul's crazy for appealing to Caesar. This is probably, if they had mics back in, this would be one of those epic hot mic moments. You know what I mean? Agrippa leaning over to Festus. This guy's crazy. You know, he could be on the streets right now doing whatever he wants to do if he wouldn't appeal to Caesar. What's his problem? Yeah. Well, Paul knows what's, what's going on. 
I look at this, I go, Paul's the only sane one in the room. He's the only sane one in the room because he's the only one in the room whom God is with speaking truth. And he's going to Rome with that truth. Listen, Paul is not crazy. He is the most sane one in the room. Why should this matter to you? Why should this matter? Listen, the pomp and power and philosophies of the world, they are a powerful temptation for us. Let's just face it. The world has so much that it offers us, and it is easy to embrace it. But like the king's pomp here, it is fleeting and it is hollow. The, the, the praises and acceptance and approval of men that Festus wanted, that King Agrippa wanted, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Agrippa is dead. Festus is dead. Rome is dead. <laughs> but Paul's gospel prevails even today. The gospel is victorious throughout the ages. It is preached. It is believed. It radically transforms lives. The gospel stops people in their tracks. It turns them around, and it produces a life lived for the glory of Christ. It did that to Paul. It continues to do that today. And you are exhibit A of the transforming power of the gospel. Why? Well, because the gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is not a cultural phenomenon. The gospel is not a theory hashed out in some university in Europe. The gospel is not a religious idea. Romans 1.16 is clear about what the gospel is. It is the power of God that saves sinners. It is the good news that Jesus has come to set the helpless and hopeless sinner free, something they cannot do on their own. It is the good news that reveals God's undeserved mercy. It is the good news that unlocks the mysteries of God's eternal plan. It is the good news that brings joy to your life every day and if you allow it in every situation. The gospel is the good news that transforms your life as you live in the good of it. The gospel is the good news that reminds you true life isn't this life. It's awaiting us in heaven when this life is over. Pe people may call you crazy for believing and living for Jesus. And we get it, right? I mean, let's be honest for a moment. <laughs> Resurrections. Sin, a holy God, prophets of old, die to self, live for another. Our message does sound a little crazy, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. That's why we need the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts so that we might believe the gospel message. 
It is a little crazy. It is a little. Who would have written the story the way God did? So let's just own that. (laughs) Oh, but it's crazy good. The gospel is crazy good. Jesus is crazy good. You know what's really crazy? What's really, what's truly crazy is believing that that we can be fulfilled in material things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Well, what's truly crazy is that believing that temporary position, temporary status, temporary uh, 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 riches, that, that, that those are what truly make a person. What's crazy is that believing that the, moment, the, the, the momentary reality of what we touch and what we see and what we feel with our senses, that that is the ultimate reality. People will believe that our incredibly complex world was an accident. People will believe that girls can become boys. People will believe that you and I came from monkeys. But deny a message rooted in history, a historical birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension. It's not a fairy tale. People saw it. People touched Jesus. He appeared to over 500 witnesses. People watched him ascend to the right hand of the Father. So what's really crazy? (laughs) I think it's crazy not to believe in Jesus. That's what's crazy. And here's the great thing. If you don't, if you've never believed in Jesus... Well, I got some crazy information for you. You don't have to work yourself up. You don't have to be somebody. You don't have to talk a certain way. There's no pomp that you can bring to Jesus so he'll accept you. He's not looking for pageantry. Jesus says, all you are heavy laden. You're weary. The burden of life is crushing you. You know what he says? He says, come. Because that's why I came. I did everything for you. The work of my father is to believe. Come and believe in me. Come and bow your heart to me. Come and submit yourself to me. Turn from your sin. Turn to my son. And you will have the pomp of heaven. you will have the hope of glory that the trials and the struggles and the sufferings in this world 
that they are just but compared to the weight of glory that awaits you. That's crazy. (laughs) But it's true. And it's not just true. It's truth itself. It's gospel truth. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are the sane one. You can look back and go, only go, Lord, thank you for saving me. (laughs) You can't take any credit for it. But you are the victorious one. What, What these people did to Paul, what people do to you, they did to Christ in an infinitely greater way. Tim pointed that out this morning. All this that's going on, you can look and go, boy, before they did this to Paul, they did this to Christ. Yes. And they did it to him, and he allowed them to do it to them for this very moment so that you could have him as your Lord and Savior. And so I think that every one of us here, we can say, take courage and be crazy for Christ, if you will, by living your life in all humility with deep gratitude and for no one's glory but God's. I bet, everything, every, I bet everyone in here could think of some area right now that you need much grace to live crazy for Christ instead of something else. Maybe you're living crazy for financial gain. Christ is being pushed back onto the back burner. Maybe you're living crazy for someone's approval and acceptance, a spouse, a parent, a child, a coworker, a boss, a friend. Maybe you're living crazy for temporary pleasure. Whatever it is, identify it right now. I don't have to tell anybody, although that might be a good idea. Identify it right now. And we're going to end by taking that together to the Lord in prayer.